0: Um, So, I'd like to end this interesting long day uh, by explaining why I think uh, computer science was one of the worst things ever happened to computers or to science, Um, why I believe that and what that leads me to. Um, I, I believe that because it's fundamentally unphysical. It's based on maintaining a fiction that digital isn't physical and happens in or a disconnected virtual world. Um, I feel like I've earned the right to believe this for things like um, one of my my students um, built and runs all the computers Facebook runs on and one of my students built and used to run all the computers Twitter runs on and it was because I taught them to not believe in computer science, meaning their job is they have to take billions of dollars and Tens or now hundreds of megawatts and tons of mass and make information and not believe that the digital is abstracted from the physical. Um, or, you know, some of the other things that have come out from this lineage was uh, some of the first quantum computations or microfluidic computing, um, or part of creating some of the first minimal cells. Um, I think it was Stephen who observed? we're surrounded by computation and, and we don't use most of it. And so all of this leads me up to um, wanting to do a do-over. And so I, I view the current state of computer science as a bit like Metropolis. It's training people to frolic in the garden while somebody in the basement moves the levers. And what I want to talk about is, is, is how you bring them together. And so. First of all, this I've come to the conclusion this is a historical accident. I was once removed. I i could ask Marvin what Johnny von Neumann was thinking, and I could ask um, Andy Gleason what Turing was thinking. And neither of them intended us to be living in these channels. Uh, von Neumann wrote beautifully about many things, but computer architecture wasn't one of them, that that we've been living with the legacy of the EDVAC and the machines around us. and. Much of the work of the computers in front of you is not computationally useful. It's shuttling stuff. Um, The Turing machine was never meant to be an architecture. And I'd argue, in fact, it has a very fundamental mistake, which is the head is distinct from the tape. Um, and the notion that the head is distinct from the tape, meaning persistence of tape is different from interaction, has persisted with you know, the computer in front of Rod is spending about half of its work just shuttling from the, the, the tape to the head and back again. So there's a whole parallel history of computing um, that goes from Maxwell to Boltzmann to Zillard to Landauer to Bennett, where you represent computation with physical resources. Um, you don't pretend digital is separate from physical. Computation has physics, physical resources. It has all sorts of uh, opportunities. And getting that wrong leads to a number of false dichotomies that I want to talk through now. So one kind of false dichotomy is in computer science, you're taught many, many different models of computation. And there's adherence and there's a whole taxonomy of them. In physics, there's only one model of computation. Um, A patch of space occupies space. It takes time to transit. Um, It stores state and states interact. That's just sort of, that's what the universe does. Um, anything other than that model of computation is a physics. And you need sort of epicycles to, to, to maintain the fiction. And in many ways, that fiction is now breaking. If you look, I'll talk a little bit um, later about um, scaling high performance compute. Actually, I'll talk about it right now. So when you, I've, I've been working on people working on exascale um, computer architecture, the biggest supercomputer architecture. And if you look at what it costs to move data to memory and what it costs to do interconnect, Um, and what it costs to have all the processors working usefully. All of those things are breaking. And so for DARPA we did a study of what if you took um, a computer and from, uh, from scratch rewrote computer software and hardware so that you represented space and time physically. So if you zoom from a transistor up to an application, you change representations, completely unrelated ones about five different times. You know, If you zoom the building we're in from city, state, country, it's hierarchical, but you respect the geometry. And it turns out you can do that to make computer architectures where software and hardware are aligned not in disconnected worlds. And so one of the places that I've been involved in pushing that is in exascale high performance computing architecture. You know, re- really just a fundamental do over to make software look like hardware, not to uh, be in an abstracted world. Um, right now we're in deep learning mania um, as one of the things pushing computing. Um, depending on how you count, this is now um, <clears throat> the fifth boom bust cycle. And From a distance, it looks like, ooh, we're now in a boom cycle. This is the good thing, and everything else was bad. But one of the things that gets very little attention, a quiet trend that's been emerging, is what's really driving the current AI boom is scaling. Networks gathering more data, bigger memories storing the data, more processing cycles. And a quiet, really interesting trend is it turns out most of what's getting the attention on the deep learning architectures don't really matter much that um, many different approaches work equally well, that there's nothing magic about the deep learning architectures. The magic is there's more data with more memory, with more cycles. And it's sort of a cargo cult, the obsession with the acronym zoo of the deep learning. It's really just an exercise in scaling um, that's been making that possible. So to keep pushing the boundary of um, digital and physical, today has been full of... A a big, what I'd say, is a false dichotomy, although you nodded to the importance of recognizing that it's not one, which is just analog versus digital. So um, analog versus digital are not two distinct choices, and you can pick one or the other. What's really interesting is what lies between them. So as an example, um, my lab spun off a chip company uh, that uses analog degrees of freedom to solve digital problems. So a digital system lives on the corner of a hypercube. But what we did in that chip company is you use the analog device degrees of freedom to go through the interior of the hypercube, not to stay on the corners. And it saves power and it saves speeds and has all these performance benefits. Um, That's not a new idea. In the context of optimization of like the largest scale, you know, many of the largest scale computations, what's used are things called. uh, interior point methods or relaxations where you have a discrete answer you want, like routing an airplane or which way to turn a car, but the way you get through it is you relax the discrete constraints and use internal degrees of freedom. And you know th- these are the most important algorithms for solving large-scale computational problems, these interior point methods. And so if you just took one of my chips doing a physical version of this, a neurobiologist would have absolutely no idea what was going on in it, but it would make perfect sense in an introductory um, uh, optimization class and To go back to digital, um, digital isn 't ones and zeroes, so the heart of what Shannon did is one of the hearts of what Shannon did is threshold theorems, and so Uh, a threshold theorem says I can talk to you as a waveform or I can talk to you as a symbol and If I talk to you as a symbol, if the noise is above a threshold, you're guaranteed to decode it wrong. If the noise is below a threshold, for a linear increase in the physical resources representing the symbol, there's an exponential reduction in the fidelity to decode it. And that exponential scaling means unreliable devices can operate reliably. And so the real meaning of digital is that scaling property. But the scaling property isn't one and zero. It's the states in the system. And what these interior point relaxation methods do is, in the end, you drive to an outcome that's a, a discrete state, but you pass through continuous degrees of freedom. And so it's a very naive version to say digital is ones and zeros. It's really state restoration, but you can use continuous degrees of freedom. And in many different areas, this is done to do the state restoration. It's sort of a false thing to shoot, the notion that it's, it, it's just computing with ones and zeros. Now, threshold theorems, uh, so it it was proof first proved by Shannon. Von Neumann applied Shannon to computing to show how reliable computers can operate with unreliable devices. But the thing that really excites me is um, threshold theorems were invented four billion years ago, uh, which is the evolutionary age of the ribosome. And the connection is if you mix chemicals and make a chemical reaction, a yield of a part per 100 is good. Um, When the ribosome Um, the molecular assembler that makes your proteins elongates, um, it makes an error in one in 10 to the four. When DNA replicates, it adds one extra error correction step and that makes an error in 10 to the minus eight. And that's exactly the scaling of threshold theorem. So the the exponential complexity that makes you possible is by error detection and correction um, in your construction. Um, and so it's everything Shannon and Van Neumann taught us about codes and reconstruction, but it's now doing it in physical systems. And so one of the projects I'm working on in my lab I'm most excited about is to make an assembler that can assemble assemblers from the parts that it's assembling, so a self-reproducing machine And what it's based on is you're made from 20 parts, uh, amino acids. And what's interesting about amino acids is they're not interesting. They have simple properties like hydrophobic and hydrophilic and basic and acidic, but you can compose them to make uh, muscles and motors and sensors. In the same way, we're taking 20 inorganic properties like conducting and insulating and show you can compose them hierarchically. In fact, the project funding that was a proposal to the DOD to reduce their whole supply chain to 20 parts, these fundamental building blocks. And they're based on digitizing the materials. And so this idea of digital materials is if you compare state-of-the-art manufacturing with a LEGO brick or a ribosome, when a kid plays with LEGO, You don't need a ruler because the metrology comes from the parts. And same thing for the amino acids. Um, The LEGO tower is more accurate than the motor control of the child because you detect and correct errors in their construction. That's the same thing with the amino acid. There's no trash with LEGO because there's information in the construction that lets you deconstruct it and use it again. And again, it's the same thing with the amino acids. It's everything we understand is digital, but now the digital is actually in the construction. It's, it's, It's digitizing the materials. Um, And so um, the core project of assembling an assembler, um, in part, it's a paradigmatic challenge. One of the core reasons I want to do it, I think it was Frank who just said, there's nothing exponential yet. And it's exactly for that point that if you look at scaling coding construction by assembly, ribosomes are slow. They run at one hertz, one amino acid a second. But a cell can have a million, and you can have a trillion cells. And so as you are sitting here listening, you're placing 10 to the 18 parts a second. And it's because you can ring up this capacity of assembling assemblers. And so really, the heart of the project is the exponential scaling of um, self-reproducing assemblers. And so what that, in turn, leads me up to is um, As we work on the self-reproducing assembler, um, and then as we work on how you write software that looks like hardware that respects geometry, um, they meet in morphogenesis. And um, this is the thing I'm most excited about right now. So the design of design. your genome doesn't store anywhere that you have five fingers. Um, it stores a developmental program, and when you run it, at the end of that, you get five fingers. And it's one of the oldest parts of the genome. The like Hox genes are an example, the, the morphogenes. Um, it, it's the only essentially the only part of the genome where the spatial order matters. It actually gets read off as a program. And the program, Never represents the physical thing it's constructing. It represents local. The morphogens are a program, the morphogenes are a program that specifies morphogens that do things like climb gradients and uh, symmetry break, and never represents the thing it's constructing, but the morphogens then following the morphogenes give rise to you. And what's going on? In morphogenesis, in part, is compression. So a billion bases can, can specify a trillion cells. But the more interesting thing that's going on is almost anything you perturb in the genome is either inconsequential or fatal. Um, and the, the morphogenes are this really interesting curated search space where rearranging them is interesting. You go from gills to wings to flippers. It's a very interesting curated search space. Um, very similar to um, the heart of success in machine learning, however you represent it, is function representation. That that the real progress in machine learning is learning representation. How you search hasn't changed all that much, but how you represent search. And these morphogenes are a beautiful way to represent design. Technology today doesn't do it. Technology today generally doesn't really distinguish um, genotype and phenotype in the sense that you explicitly represent what you're designing. In morphogenesis, you actually never represent the thing you're designing. It's in this beautifully abstracted way. And so for these self-reproducing assemblers, what we're building is morphogenesis for the design of design. To be able to place billions of degrees of freedom, uh, rather than a a combinatorial search over billions of degrees of freedom, you actually search over these developmental programs is one of the core research questions we're looking at. So I started off this perhaps diatribe by complaining about computer science. Um, but von Neumann and Turing ended exactly here. You're probably familiar. But the last thing von Neumann worked on, and this is something he wrote beautifully about, was self-reproducing machines. His, if you've ever read it, his memo on the EDVAC is, uh, is a mess. The programming manual, you know, where the von Neumann architecture emerged, it's, it's, it's a dreadful document. It's so- Um, What he wrote about self reproducing machines was exquisite. It's a beautiful um, um, posthumous document um, asking how a thing can um, communicate a computation for its construction, how to abstract a self reproducing thing. He he was asking it to really get at the heart of what is life. It was a theoretical thing at that time. That's, That's what he ended up his life doing. Um, and the last thing Turing ended his life doing was studying morphogenesis. And what it's casually known for is like Turing spots and patterns. But that, that, that was a detail. What he was really asking was um, sort of bits from atoms or atoms from bits. He was asking, how do genes give rise to us? And so looking at exactly this question of how a code and a gene give rise to form. And so Turing and von Neumann, both completely understood that that the really interesting place in computation is how computation becomes physical, how it becomes embodied, and how you represent it. That's where they both ended their life. That's sort of neglected in the canon of computing. But we're now at this really interesting point where I'm I'm on the hook to deliver on a research program to make a self-reproducing von Neumann assembler. We can really think about making these things now. Of embodying it, so it 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 is a third digital revolution. There was communication, then computation, now fabrication. It's not a separate one, but it merges them because it merges them in a thing that communicates its construction to fabricate. And finally, um, computing went from one to one. You know, first like. Uh, Uh, first computer, uh, close to home, for example, at MIT, the first real-time computer was the Whirlwind, there was one of those. Then came the PDP as the mini computers, and there were thousands of those. Then came the hobbyist computers like the Altair, and there are millions of those. Then came the really personal computers and smartphones, and there's billions of those. And now, Internet of Things devices, and there's trillions of those. And the Nest thermostat roughly has the capacity of the PDP. So computing scaled from one to a 1,000, to a million, to a billion, to a trillion. Uh, You could see all of that lurking in 1965 when Gordon Moore made his first plot of Moore's Law that scaled for 50 years. In the same way, if you take digital fabrication, um, it's been scaling for about a decade in in the same way. You can make a Moore's Law-like plot for performance and scaling of digital fabrication. And there's a really close historical parallel. MIT made the first NC mill in 1952. Um, That's like the mainframe. Uh, For NSF, I started setting up fab labs, which are mini versions of the big lab I run, which would fit in a room like this, um, that have current digital fab tools. And that's like the PDP version. And there's a thousand of those today. We're using those to make um, machines that make machines, not self-reproducing assemblers, but just rapid prototyping tools that make rapid prototyping tools. And that's moving towards a million of them. In the lab, we're developing these assemblers uh, that I described, and then working towards the self-assemblers. All those things exist in some form today, but they're going to be emerging between now and 50 years from now. But you can really see the 1,000 million, billion, trillion scaling happening for digital fabrication. And so we're at a really interesting point now where it makes as much sense to take seriously that scaling as it did to take Morris Law scaling in 1965 um, when he he made his first graph. And I began to appreciate that um, when I backed into, um, we started doing these fab labs just as outreach for NSF. And then they went uh, viral. And they let ordinary people go from consumers to producers. And so it's really leading to very fundamental things about what is work what is money what is an economy what is consumption so we're doing things like you know there's legislation in the um, Senate and House right now for universal access to digital fabrication like there was for communication and computation or we're working with um, Bhutan's um, uh, prime minister and a, a number of people where the country's based on gross national happiness but they buy crap trucked in from India on how to make sort of gross national happiness um, physical. We're working with a number of cities around the world that have failed economies on how to turn um, consumption into creation. And so in the same way that the internet emerged in the mini-computer era, this 50-year scaling of digital fabrication is emerging today. And the equivalent of how does the internet work is growing up around it. And you know, a, a surprising fraction of my time has just gone into working with all these you know, Governments and organizations and social groups on if anybody can make anything anywhere, kind of how, how does that reinvent societies and economies? Um, so, stepping back, I started with complaining that computer science was the worst thing to happen, the computers are science because it's unphysical. Pointed out you really can do a do over of computer science that's much more aligned with physics. It has all kinds of benefits, ranging from computing with very different sort of physical systems to limits of high-performance computing. But ultimately, reuniting computer science and physical science leads to merging the bits and atoms. So fabrication merges with communication and computation. Most fundamentally, it leads to things like morphogenesis and self-reproducing and assemblers. Most practically, it leads to Almost anybody can make almost anything, which is one of the most disruptive things I know happening right now. And think about this range I talked about as um, for computing the 1,000 million, billion, trillion, now happening for the physical world. It's all here today, but coming out on many different length scales. And I'll end with the last time we gathered, uh, there was a suggestion to turn it into a book, which was a lovely exercise. Um, Coming here, John asked me what I thought we should do coming out from this. I had three suggestions that he thought were all horrible, so I'll end with those. Um, The baseline is we have a lovely weekend, we admire each other, and then we go home. So that's the default. Horrible? No, that's your your suggestion. (laughs) Um, One suggestion I had is I recently, some of you may know, wrote a book about everything I just talked about with my younger brother, who led the biggest uh, video game studio, Activision. Um, and he was horrified when we did this book and discovered when you write a book, it's good if it sells thousands of copies. Um, he's used to selling tens of millions of whatever he does. Um, and in, in in the video games, he now does games. Not he left Activision. He has a company that does games for education and social change. So the most recent one they did that got a lot of attention was with Alaska Native storytellers, um, where there's great traditions, but terrible alcoholism, and suicide, and unemployment. And they used Alaska Native storytellers to work with them to tell narratives in immersive video game experiences. And there's a whole bunch of examples like that. So one suggestion I had John hated was we actually build the world we're describing as an immersive experience and get it in the hands of millions of people. uh, a second one is um, I had done a number of friend-of-friend of friend movie advising in Hollywood, and that led through a collaboration where I helped start an office called the Science Entertainment Exchange, which hijacks popular media, takes uh, movies and TV shows, and uses them as covers to put in science teaching. And it's been working really well embedding science in all kinds of popular shows. So the second thing is we take everything we're trying to do and embed it in the popular conscious by hijacking some movies or TV shows. And then the third one has been working with some interesting groups that put together big stadium shows. And so this has been lovely, but it's just for us. We do this on an epic scale. What was the third suggestion? And so those are the three ideas John thought were terrible that I'll conclude with. (laughs) And um, step back and open that for discussion. Thank you.
1: First, of the first part, of a comment, which is I wonder, I wonder if we could discuss a little bit whether there's something different about the biological case than, say, the physical properties that lead to snowflakes or crystals. That is to say, the elementary atomic forces don't have encoded this complicated hexagonal form, but you get there when they I mean, they, they just make local decisions, and the local decisions add up like Lego blocks to something else. But my question really is about the physicalization or the embodiment of computation. Uh, and I wonder what, what it, I'm, so I can think of several reasons why you might want to shorten the gap or eliminate the gap between software and hardware. One might be that there's a kind of aesthetic objection. There's something wrong <laughs> with uh, hardware that is disjunct from the way we represent it. Now, we do have there are other things that we do in our representation where they're not matched to the, I mean, differential equations don't look like the things that they're often representing. Um, so, but, or another might be efficiency, that somehow if we could have uh, a software that matched the physicality of, say, atoms in bits, that it would run without the kind of frictional loss of computing power in our everyday d- devices. And a third might be that, you know, that there are actually more and more cases where the software is embodied, it is embedded in the hardware itself. I mean, if you get down, you dig down into your Intel chip, there's actually quite a lot of software in them. Uh, before you get to the level of high-level programming, you read a machine language, there's, there's stuff down there. So I wondered what... What is it that propels... I mean, it's supposed we agree that, that, it's, it, that there are the, this gap between the representation and the things represented. What is it that propels
0: you? Okay. So, f- for your first passing point about the snowflake, I'll, I'll make a passing point, which is the work I'm describing on coding assembly of digital materials um, isn't a single length scale. We're doing that in molecular biology when we make synthetic cells. We're doing nanofab to make nanostructures. We're micro micromachining microstructures up to we're working with like Airbus and robots to make jumbo jets and NASA to make spaceships on really big scales. So what I spoke about isn't a single length scale. It's, it's better to think about it as the dynamic range between the smallest feature you need to control and, and the size of the system. But to why align computer science and physical science, um, there are at least five reasons for me. Um, only lightly is it philosophical. It's, it's uh, you know, it cracks in the matrix. The You know, the matrix is cracking. So one is the fact that whoever has their laptop open is spending about half of its resources shuttling information from memory transistors to processor transistors, even though the memory transistors have the same computational power as the processor transistors, you know, is a bad legacy of the EDVAC. Um, it, it's, you know, It's a bit annoying for the computer, but when you get to things like an exascale supercomputer, um, it breaks. You just just can't maintain the fiction um, as you push the scaling. So the resource in very large-scale computing is maintaining the fiction so the programmers can pretend it's not true is getting just so painful you you need to redo it. and in fact, if you look down in the trenches, things like emerging ways to do very large-scale GPU program are beginning to you know, inch in that direction. So one is just, it, it's breaking um, in performance. Um, one is, we're just wasting resources. So by percent, so first of all, when you really look at what's going on in your Intel chip, um, it's right at the edge of... Um, analog, that they do a lot of work inside, it's, it's awfully analog that ends up looking digital on the outside, um, but we're actually wasting a lot of the computational, sort of in the sense of the universe, power of the transistor. So like the chip fab I mentioned that the analog devices bought more recently is we're wasting degrees of freedom in the devices that aren't a simple version of analog versus digital. You can solve digital problems, but by using the analog degrees of freedom, you you win speed, power, performance, all kinds of good stuff, Um, uh, was a a second reason for it. A third reason for it is things like when we were doing early days of quantum computing, or um, the stuff we did on microfluidic logic, is you're computing with fundamentally different physical resources, where you need to represent the computation in a way that can describe the physics um, uh, that you're working with. Um, But I'd say for me the final reason goes back to where von Neumann ended up, which is when I make this self-reproducing assembler, um, in the very short term today I'm using conventional computer architectures for the intelligence of it, but what I really need to do is I need to overlay the computation as geometry. If I'm doing morphogenesis with a self-reproducing system, it, it just does. I, I don't want to then just paste in some lines of code. The, the computation is part of the construction of the object. I need to represent the computation in the construction, and so it really forces you to be able to overlay geometry with construction. And so, they are all different reasons, but they all lead you to the um, same place. And interestingly, like so, for the experts, for the do-over I mentioned in DARPA, we took the BLAS, which are the routines that underlie high-performance computing and we rewrote them in a geometrical spatial computing model. And what's interesting is a lot of the things that's hard in, in, for example, parallelization and synchronization sort of comes for free. By representing time and space explicitly, you don't need to do the annoying things like thread synchronization and all the stuff that goes into um, parallel programming. That has a lot of nice benefits that come from getting that right. So how
2: is this, just for an outsider, kind of looks like you're saying, When thinking about, you know, the software, mm-hmm. hardware matters, physics matters, but you know, in some sense everyone's known all along with the mm-hmm. hardware matters and the physics matters and chip makers mm-hmm. and everyone else under the sun has been thinking about how to do the best computing you can given your, uh, your, uh, the limitations of your current hardware technology and the, mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, the resources of physics. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to see the thing you're saying, which kind of goes beyond that, uh beyond that uh, natural part. One thing you're saying is that we have we haven't done everything we can to take advantage of of the uh, of the hardware possibilities and it's like okay so we've got to uh, we've got to you know push this project harder and faster. So does
0: um, it go beyond that? Uh so um, yes, uh,
2: the and the part about fabrication, I guess, and self assembly. I see that's how, that might be something fundamentally new and different. That's, but that's not just about. Well, let me help. So let me connect. The, <laughs> let me help you connect yeah,
0: those. Okay. parts. Yeah. Let me help yeah. you connect yeah. those parts. Yeah. So, um, the communication degraded with distance. Along came Shannon. We now have the internet. Computation degraded with time. And it came up briefly earlier. The last great analog computer was Vannevar Bush's differential analyzer. One of the students working on it was Shannon. He was so annoyed, you know, he invented our modern digital notions in his master's thesis um, to get over the experience of, of working on the differential analyzer. Um, the, again, the just for computing to um, go back to the last question um, today. The, in this computer, it's, it's sort of sort of head-bangingly stupid what's going on as this accidental legacy of um, you know, von Neumann architecture, Long he never actually talked about the von Neumann architecture, long past its due date. Um, much of the resources are shuttling information from memory transistors to processor transistors you know, wasting the power of all of this, it, um, and then uh, the u- utilization of it is more inefficient still when you go from the software compilation to the hardware. And so, um, one of the points was just it, it, it's very inefficient, and it doesn't matter if you're doing word processing. Um, it does matter if you're pushing <laughs> limits of computing performance. And so, very low power or very high power, um, you care about that. It's but so but it's so stupid. Why didn't someone from Intel figure this out years ago? Well, so what's interesting is there's a whole parallel history. You know, we've been lulled into um, uh, sleep by Gordon Moore. And in fact, the work I was describing, I spent some time with Gordon Moore in the early days of, of this... Fabrication scaling I was mentioning and he was really amused by the kind of the parallel with what he did at that time There was a wind, It's, it's like the matrix There was a you know, we had a few decades where we could pretend that you know that there's, nobody's moving the layers in the basement Levers in the basement and we can frolic in the garden There's been a parallel history all the way through it passes through people like Danny um, There are a number of device physics, you know, there's a whole parallel history uh, Building this but but you could ignore it you have a good, good few decades run you could ignore it so you know again limits of either high performance low power are really pushing it and just you know the, I started by mentioning like my students who built the computers for Facebook and Twitter and that they're not doing this at fundamental physics level but they had to sort of completely re-architecture how you build a data center you know with sort of coarse grain um, versions of it um, mm-hmm. so you didn't see, but the, the, I wanted to just finish answering the question. Um, you, you don't see it, but sort of it, it, it percolates in things like, you know, how Jason built the Facebook data center. But to, just to recap, the answer: you really need to do what I'm describing if you don't compute with Intel. And so the stuff we did on quantum computing or fluidic or molecular computing, you really need to revisit these assumptions. But if you are, are confused by everything I say, and you take a single thing away, it's um, the last part I talked about about Digitizing fabrication is not you can compute and then there's this other thing here, but it's a synthesis that w- when you merge communication with computation with fabrication, it's not there's a duopoly of communication computation Then over here is manufacturing. It's they really all belong together. The way we work, the heart of how we work is this sort of trinity of communication plus computation and fabrication. And for me, the real point is merging them.
3: Danny? I was going to give just a very specific small example which I think supports the abstraction that he's saying, which is in modern ways of analyzing algorithms and computers and as, as our, the model, the computer science, um, we count the cost of moving a bit in time, we call that storage. And that's very carefully measured in the algorithms and things like that. The cost of moving a bit in space is completely invisible. And it just doesn't come up in the... You know, there's no measure of that in the way that we abstract it but in fact if you look at the megawatts that are dissipated in high performance computers it mostly comes from moving bits in space that's the big limitation mm-hmm. and so and that is you know that's also where the errors are it's where the cost is it's where so our our abstraction that we're thinking about, the algorithms in, is completely out of sync with where our costs are. And And you think have not been thinking about those
2: costs of innovation
0: No, 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 No. no, so let me give you a precise answer to that. So again, uh, one more example of the cracks in the matrix is every few months there's a headline about a new security vulnerability. And an awful lot of them have to do with things that are supposed to be far away in computation space Um, colliding in physical space, because there's no way to say things that are far apart computationally should be far apart physically. So that's another example of the matrix. I've spent time with the people after Gordon who actually ran Moore's Law at Intel, the the keepers of Moore's Law. And one of the most evocative images from them, one of them described his job as in the Indiana Jones movie, When the Boulder's Running Down, (laughs) And you know the image, and he's running away from the boulder. He said, that's his life. Um, All he can do is not get run over from the boulder. They're they're running this multi-billion dollar oil tanker, and it's really hard to steer and they have to make (laughs) sure the boulder doesn't run over them. And they have just, they have no ability. I I almost took over running research at Intel. It ended up being a bad idea on both sides. But when I was talking to them about it, I was actually like warned off. It was like Godfather. like don't you go there, you know don't you know you, you you can do that other stuff, but don't you dare mess with the mainline architecture you know you, you we're not allowed you're, we're not allowed to think that, and in defense of them, it's billions of billions of dollars investment. It was really hard to do. It was a good multi decade reign you know, they, they they just weren't able to do it, Seth yeah, maybe maybe thinking if we look
4: at this. What Frank was saying, and other people said about the power of the brain, and ask what we would need in a computational device to do that. So, the brain has, you know, we were saying, 10 to the 11th neurons, around 10 to the 15 connections, so it's got, and it operates at the kind of 100 hertz scale. So, and if suppose you wanted to get a silicon device that had a similar scale, well, if you made it a chip this big, then you could get things if if the size of the objects were a nanometer and you weren't worrying about the the wiring, and the amount of, you would have to have you know, about one electron per transistor, so you'd have to go down to single electron transistors, this device would be tremendously noisy, you'd have the problem of moving information around so if you want to actually get to the kind of information processing that human beings have which uh, and other animals as well, you would really need to to uh, go far beyond the paradigms that people have dealing with noisy computation, making it analog, mapping you know the way the physical processing is going on onto a chip in a way that's very different from the way that people do the architecture right now um, doing things massively in parallel if you actually wish to go you know to the to the the fulfill the promise of Moore's Law, the kind of thing that people are talking about and get artificial intelligences that are similar in scale to Human beings, you've got to do something quite different. And again, analog doesn't
0: mean analog. <laughs> Meaning, um, analog in this context means you have states, and the system you you you, you recover from errors and you detect states. Um, but the states are outcomes of the system; they're not ones and zeros. That 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 one of the things we're stuck in is a state is one and a zero and you know this device in front of me keeps recurring the state not at the high level thing I'm trying to do but at the ones and zeros and these interior point relaxation methods I was describing both in software optimization and in emerging chips do digitize but they're digitizing on high level outcomes but using the analog degrees of freedom and that was behind my comment that when the brain does a few moves a second it's actually moving through this very high dimensional space ending into a discrete outcome. So the effective number of operations that are done, done this way is an enormous number.
4: Yeah. yeah, I mean I wanted to return to Rod's talk, which is asking whether any of the things that you learn by thinking about doing these things and, and scaling are actually things that shouldn't form the way that we think about neuroscience in terms of getting at some of the inadequacies of classic models of computation for neuroscientists? Yeah, so I was at
0: recently at a retreat of you know, many of the leading neuroscientists for like a review of the state of the art of the field. And um, boy, I was horrified. I mean, they, they were horrified. You know, The state of the art of neuroscience still is like you throw the watch at the wall and you see the parts that come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a really lively discussion about the sort of... Devices I'm building and the algorithms we're using, they would be completely stumped by. They would have absolutely no idea how to recognize that was going on. Um, um, We don't have an easy next step after that, but there's an interesting dialogue with the neuroscientists about it.
5: So there there is something that's a bit puzzling though about this, which is that you know you have these incredibly complex devices, and they can be translated. You're talking about brains. Brains, right? You have these incredibly complex devices. And they can be translated into a bunch of symbols on a piece of paper or a bunch of very clearly simple, digitally described symbols in a language. And that seems to be able to do a lot of that seems to be able to do a lot of work for human beings, right? I mean arguably a lot of the, the capacities for intelligence that we have Come from things like being able to talk to one another, or being able to write, or being able to use symbols in these ways that, from a hardware perspective, are you know completely, completely trivial. And it, I mean, this is this is. Not, I'm not being disingenuous about this. I think this is actually a real puzzle. And in some ways, you know, what Turing is modeling, what he's starting out with when he's thinking about the computer who's sitting there in Bletchley Park, is not anything like you know not this tiny, tiny, tiny bit of complexity compared to the complexity of what's actually going on underneath the hood of, oh, okay, you take two and then you take two and you add it to the other two and then you know carry the one and get to the four. I just It's puzzling to me about what the relationship
0: is between those two things. Well let's see. One piece of what, so one interesting group I worked with was um, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base where among the most sensory overloaded tasks are fighter pilots. And so they wanted to make yeah, planes you could fly by thinking. And what came out of that after a lot of work is um, it's a really terrible idea. Yeah. And the reason is with a lot of work to pull a lot of signals out and do a lot of interpretation, you can barely control anything. Yeah, Because right. all of this just isn't the right representation. All of this is designed so that this moves and this moves. And the best way to interface with this is to, is to move your fingers. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, the repre- you know—this representation is an internal one, and then um, this is an external one.
5: So it's—I mean—it it's, seems to me like it's an incredibly interesting, sort of understudied fact that the way that what this what this all ends up driving is a bunch of fingers and your larynx, right? You know, this tiny system with tiny degrees of freedom and very little complexity is actually the thing that's doing the work that we think of. As being a lot of the work of intelligence,
0: but but again, the, these kinds of relaxations interior point methods that I keep alluding to, there's something similar to them in that they're moving through these, you know, like billion dimensional spaces. Um, but what they're what they're putting outside is not the interior point, but um, statistics of of the states that they're get, getting driven to, and so there really are analogs between. Unpacking the huge number of internal degrees of freedom versus small number of observable degrees of freedom in, in these engineered systems. Yeah. Yes. Brain also has these amazing hardware inefficiencies in it too, which are kind
2: of analogous to your uh, to your hardware cases, like this fact that well it uses electrical transmission within neurons, but between cells it's chemical transmission. So I guess the brain gets, just got locked into that the way Intel got, got locked in. <laughs> Years ago, and then again, it, couldn't, it couldn't escape the, the, the boulder fast enough, so
0: it got stuck. Yeah, no, no I mean, that, that's really, really true. Again, the the, these, the embodiment of everything we're talking about for me is the morphogens, the, these things, that, the way evolution searches for design by coding for construction, and they're the, the, the oldest part of the genome. They were invented a very long time ago, and like nobody's messed with them since. I, I disagree with that about
4: the brain. I mean, the the, the electrical signals use a lot more power, but they go fast and they go a long distance. The synaptic connections, of which there are thousands more, use much, much, much less power. And I mean, I'm talking about just energy, but they go over a very, very tiny distance and they only use uh, you know, a few hundred molecules and it's great. So it's actually pretty efficient. Very slowly. They're chemical. And they're chemical
5: yeah. and, they, and there's a kind of redundancy and robustness in those in yeah. those yeah. separate yeah. things. And there's also um, a way of there's a different system of feedback, which is also really fascinating. That you know that chemicals are regulated by completely different body systems, which allows for all different kinds of intelligence to overlap and reinforce each other. Although it's worth pointing out, the plasticity is expensive, right? So if you're looking, this is one of my favorite factoids: is if you look at. Um, You know, everyone knows brains are taking about, you know, 20% of calories. If you look at four-year-olds, it's 66 to 70% of Mm -hmm. calories are actually getting 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 used up by by brains. Because it's it's not so much that they're actually doing the computations, but... The, they're actually establishing what the wiring looks like and right. it looks
0: There's like an interesting is. version of that I, I worked with I worked with an IBM um, large scale computer architect on a, a project that to make a completely self free a a computer that can physically remodify itself. So taking the kind of assembler I'm describing to make a computer that can rebuild its construction, and we're still discussing that and working on it, but he told me something really interesting. They did a very early kind of crude version of that, and what they discovered was um, the computer got configured, it never got reconfigured, (laughs) which is very analogous to learning, that, that the configurability was used to adapt the computer to the workload, but they never went back to to change it mm-hmm. um, and so that led us to look at not reconfigurable but just configurable computers like computers that can build themselves mm-hmm. but don't necessarily need to unbuild themselves so, so I would add so if, if we're just about out of time the uh, get over digital and physical are separate they can be united get over analog is separate from digital there's a really profound place in between. Um, we're at the beginning of 50 years of, um, like Moore's Law, but for the physical world. And we didn't talk much about it, but it, it has the biggest impact of every anything I know, if anybody can make anything. And I'll leave you with my three questions that John doesn't like. of Do you want to make a video game for millions of people to live in the world we're in? And by the way, I did, I did one of these. It's really fun to build the, you know, build the world you're trying to create. Do you want to portray it on a large scale? Um, do you want to do what we're doing here you know on a large scale is as, as any of those have great teams that could help with it um, rather than just doing a book